Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome to Castaway, FIS's podcast. Uh, I have with me today, uh, Kerry in the office, uh, and also all the way from Singapore, our Director of Asia, Tom. Hello, guys. Hi, Chris. Morning, guys. One hand short today, so I suspect we'll be missing a few puns from, uh, <laughs> from Alex. Yes, if you're a fan of the puns, I'm sorry. And if you're not a fan of the puns, you're welcome. Uh, but let's kick on to uh, our news update. Uh, stories that we've seen, articles we've seen that have caught our attention. Uh, why don't we start with you, Tom, where you've picked up one which everyone's starting to talk about, the US election. Yeah, uh, I mean, US elections are now starting to get uh, a little bit difficult to ignore, particularly with the rhetoric that's been ramping up over the last couple of uh, days and weeks in the States, uh, but we'll avoid the politics. Uh, This one's from a financial perspective. So the VIX, the Global Volatility Index, is uh, often described uh, in sort of trading circles as a the risk index, uh, and it, it gives an indication of the way the the, the financial markets are pricing uh, volatility uh, moving forward. And uh, what this index is pricing at the moment is basically that the US election come November is the worst event in futures history. I think the index has been going since 2003 in terms of expected volatility. Um, so... Uh, if you drill into that article a little bit, uh, they're basing this statement around a butterfly trade, which is where um, if you buy a butterfly, you buy the wings essentially. So you buy a um, you buy a front month contract, you sell two units of a middle contract, and you buy a back month contract as well. So in this instance, we'd be talking about um, buying September and November the wings and selling October. Um, um, and and if, you, if, you, if you do that, um, the volatility, the cost that you'd have to pay as a, as a trader on that structure is the highest that this index has ever registered. So I think what that is suggesting is that, you know, I think the markets are pricing in the possibility of um, a similar situation to 2000 possibly where there's a huge degree of uncertainty around who wins the election and what happens with that and you know do we end up in a supreme court scenario like we had with bush and al gore uh and given the acrimony that we've got in the u.s political scene yeah. at the moment how that might play out in reality I, um, I think you'd probably be looking at a situation tom that's far worse than 2000 yes in terms of agreed Mass um, unrest, you know, so and the possibilities of very unpleasant events happening. So, yeah, exactly, uh, and, and that is what's being borne out on this uh, on this VIX uh, index. So it was, you know, a bit of clickbait on the headline from from Bloomberg, but it, it certainly, you know, it it is what the it is what the market is representing. So um, an interesting one, and one to watch certainly as we get closer and closer to November. It's an interesting contra- contrast with something that the Economist has been putting out. I think it was a couple of months ago, maybe last month, um, basically saying nine out of 10, it's going to be a Biden victory, no need to worry. 
seems that now, as you're talking about, the market has definitely a different perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, JP's uh, chief analyst, equities analyst, basically said yesterday that it's not a slam dunk uh, and the market should definitely position itself um, for the possibility of a Trump uh, re-election basis, you know, what's being borne out because of the new set of riots that we're seeing uh, and the law and order rhetoric that's being hammered by both sides of the debate. Uh, and also the fact that, you know, they think a lot of people are still secret Trump voters, uh, you know, won't admit it to the polls, but are probably going to vote for him in, in reality, which is what happened last time round. Whether there's any evidence of that, I don't know. Uh, but but he, it certainly seems the polls have narrowed a little bit on the back of what's been going on in the States this week. Um, I, I, think, I think that there is that possibility, Tom, but I, I'm not sure it's as much about the polls narrowing as the fact that Trump's already made it very, very clear that if it's anything but an absolute landslide for Biden, he's going to reject the results of the, uh, the election. So, you know, regardless of what happens, the, the chances are probably, I think the last I looked, something like statistically still around 70 percent chance of, of a Biden victory. But that's absolutely not a slam dunk, as you say. And um and I think it's very likely to be a close election uh, and less an absolute landslide than you can expect that, uh, that, that the party in power is, is not going to surrender very easily. Uh, and we will have a, a very messy outcome, I think. So. Yeah, but certainly uh, one to watch from the market's perspective over the next couple of months. Exactly. And you will have very apolitical, political coverage here on the podcast on <laughs> both sides of the, the argument. Exactly. But yes, definitely want to watch. Let me move on to my story this week. Uh, this is talking about the problem that the UK government, but it's something which many countries face in terms of how you pay, how you get out of also the situation where we have large state intervention in the economy, a lot of people on furlough, all that investment, that borrowing which has happened. How do you, one, balance the books going forward, and two, get yourself out of that situation? So we've seen this month a change to the furlough scheme in the UK, where 10% of that is now being paid by the employers. That's going to change again the month after in October. So what this article is pointing out is that economies have been in recession, you know, a large number. Australia this morning has come out and it's first time it's gone to recession in 30 years. Um, how are we going to have the ability to, to cover this larger borrowing but with a smaller economy so this article in the ft is already pointing out that this year uk borrowing has already hit 150 billion pounds just the first four months uh, of the 2020 to 21 financial year but you have a huge recession which has has happened that kind of v-shapes we are recovering again but there's only a few ways you're going to do that either it's cutting spending further or in terms of what the article was pointing towards um, an increase in taxes, mm-hmm. which is not a platform which the Conservatives ran on, but maybe something which they are, are forced into to cover that that gap. Um, but of course, this is something which is going to be true of many countries. Uh, the UK's tax base is somewhat middling in a, a lot of those countries. And the amount that it brings in is nowhere near Scandinavian countries or France, which are, are very high in terms of their percentage of GDP, which they bring in in terms of income tax. Norway, Denmark, France, and Finland are all over 50%. Uh, UK is much lower, uh, around about 36, uh, similar levels to New Zealand. So different situations for different countries in terms of how they're going to to fund this increase in borrowing. Uh, It may be over a longer term, of course, on these things, but 
a lot of things which have been pointed towards which problems are, as the uh, Institute of Fiscal Studies is pointing out in the article, that longer term, with smaller economies, especially trying to get out of this situation, you can't just keep going on the on the public borrowing, which uh, continues. So not at all, and uh, you know, I think the chancellor here has been very clear about that, hasn't he? Uh, that uh, that large changes will have to come, and that may include changing their platforms. So um, there's no easy answer, is there? Yeah, you had different uh, perspectives on how they dealt with it in terms of a public health emergency in different countries, and now I'm sure you'll get divergent uh, views of how you deal with it on an economic scale because it's been fairly similar in terms of people's responses exactly. of large state intervention, very different from 2008 financial crisis, large state intervention, furlough, making sure you don't have that huge yeah. shockwave. So, but I'm sure that now the difference will be, okay, how do we pay for it? Exactly, exactly. And that'll only become clear this winter. Um, indeed, I think the, the full economic effects in each country will only begin to become clear this winter. Um, and so it's something to uh, certainly watch out for. Cool. Uh, Kerry, why don't you finish off with the news stories yeah, with you, you know, this week? This week I've picked one far more related to our market uh, uh, to, to bring the discussion back into focus a little bit on, on Vale, uh, Vale's targets and Vale's situation in Brazil. Uh, indeed, they uh, have just been upgraded by Fitch. Uh, so this is a story from Reuters, uh, citing the fact that uh, Fitch has upgraded their debt from uh, triple B minus to triple B. Uh, which applies to both foreign and local currency uh, bonds issued by them. Uh, the rating agency did point out that uh, they expect Valley to distribute more than $2 billion in dividends this year. This is largely due to the extraordinary prices we've seen on iron ore, which we've talked about endlessly on this podcast. I think it is interesting to note, though, that uh, Fitch itself said that, uh, quote, uh, the constraints caused by Valley's dam accident, as well as weather-related production disruptions, have kept iron ore at unsustainably high price levels, which I thought was an interesting comment uh, to make as you're upgrading somebody's debt. <laughs> um, and indeed, that tied in very nicely, I thought, with your comment, Tom. I believe you pointed out last week that quietly Valley has slightly lowered their target this year. Um, I believe they had been forecasting... Uh, all year, uh, 310 to 330 million uh, as a target, and did they not lower it to 310 to 320 last week? So a slight, a slight tweak towards the lower end of that, uh, if I'm not wrong. And yeah, so they they did. Uh, but yeah, just jumping in, um, what we have seen from this from them this week in terms of um, their export numbers, there's a huge increase, a 30% increase uh, on barley exports this week. So seven and a half million tons leaving Brazilian ports and Indeed, that's a, yeah. a one-year high. Um, so they are going some way to making up that lost volume. Um, but weekly averages are still six and a half million. So, you know, there's yeah. still a lot of ground to catch yeah. up. And even with those efforts, um, you know, they themselves are beginning to admit that they'll have to, to scale back that target, even just a touch. Um, so I thought that was quite an interesting commentary. Um, and it ties in very nicely to the freight, which we'll talk about shortly. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Kerry, guys. Uh, Tom, let's move back to you and talk about the iron ore as we've started. What are we seeing this week? Sure. Um, so I think last week we were talking about the first time in probably a couple of months that the the week-to-week price that we discussed here had come off uh, in the futures market. Um, it is not a continuation of that theme. Uh, 
So we, we've had another strong move up uh, over the last seven days. So uh, at the close last Wednesday, uh, the September contract was 119.5 and, and Q1, which has been our sort of secondary reference point as we've been discussing it, was around 105.55. Uh, um, and today, uh, about an hour ago, September 12575 and Q1 10938. So you can see another big, big push, um, big, big, big push uh, up again. Um, multiple of factors really behind that. Um, but if, if the, the, uh, the, the principal driver, I think, is that congestion that we've been talking about uh, in the ports. Uh, in the, the Chinese ports. So we've still got 188 vessels, uh, which is a week-on-week uh, week week increase of three looking to discharge. Um, so still having crew change issues uh, in and around the, the Chinese ports, uh, which is really putting some strain on the, on the supply to the market. So I think we've been very much driven by some supply-side uh, tightness. Um, we've also seen in Tangshan, one of the big uh, big um, mill areas, um, some unexpected uh, environmental curbs uh, during the past two weeks, uh, or a couple last week, sort of one day um, uh, shutdowns essentially, which um, normally will have the same same effect on price and those are expected to, to continue uh, in the coming uh, weeks as uh, there's some more inspections going on. So. It's been really a supply side uh, driven move, move north um, over the last couple of days. But again, as we've been saying week in, week out, I think the strength of these moves are confounding people um, somewhat. I think you know, from a trader's perspective, a year ago or 18 months ago, traders would have been scared by the moves that we're seeing on a daily, on an intraday basis or on, on the iron ore, uh, you know, that they're, above averages certainly almost every day at the moment i would say um but it's sort of become the new reality of trading the iron ore contract at the moment these 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 huge swings um so i think it's something that looks like it's here to stay uh and traders are all having to get used to so what we're saying really is that you tom do deserve some credit because you did say last week this was a pause <laughs> and we have moved back up straight again so I'll be starting to collect a real, uh, real selection of T-shirts that you send me in the post, Chris. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. You just switched between the, each podcast, and you know what's happening. But uh, yeah, pause, <laughs> uh, and again, we're continuing. We've we followed this iron, iron ore market the whole time we've been doing this podcast, and uh, yeah, a slight breather, but again, pushing up. It's quite, quite incredible. And if we move on to just a brief outline of what's happened in terms of the the crude markets and the related products. Uh, we pushed back up to that 46 level. So we did that initially. We were talking about last week the impact of the storm coming yeah. into, or storms, I should say, coming into the US Gulf. That pushed up levels on crude, on Brent crude, up to 46. Um, but actually, we, we did come off a little bit, and but we pushed back up again this morning to 46 before, before pulling back. Um, we said that it would be really interesting to see what happened in terms of stock data. Uh, large draw predicted by the API uh, this week. Mm -hmm. So it'd be good to see if that actually is confirmed by the EIA um, later today. Uh, but the news which has pulled back prices from 46 has been that Iraq said, please, could we have exemption from these OPEC cuts? 
which is uh, <laughs> quite an ask to have. Um, but yeah, they seemingly, exactly. seemingly struggle. Um, they've done that. Their oil minister came out this morning and that is what pulled back prices this morning. Um, in terms of fuel side, not too much to, to report really. We, we did say that those high sulfur fuel oil curves had been front few months in backwardation. The 0.5% has still stayed in that contango. It did move slightly towards it as we got to the end of the month, but the roll has pushed that back to the position where we were previously. Um, a poll of analysts, uh, so this is a Reuters poll of analysts, forecasted that for the rest of this year, they're going to see crude at 42.75. And then next year, that's going to increase to 50.45. So... A significant movement to report in terms of predictions for next year, but nothing incredible. But they are predicting a significant recovery in prices over that $50 level. Uh, global demand was um, contracted steeply last year, between 8 to 10 million barrels per, per day, um, versus in July, 7 to 2, 7.2 to 8.5 million barrels per day. So you can see a quite significant impact on, uh, on that demand. But yeah. Let's see what the EIA does later today in terms of price exactly. movements. But Iraq has thrown a spanner into the works of OPEC, and I'm sure that the other nations, especially Saudi Arabia, are on the phone to them already saying, really, guys, we took those extra <laughs> cuts earlier in the year. Do you really need to not be part of this? But um, that is definitely where people are looking at the moment in terms of drivers for, for, for market movements. But as you see for that forecast for, for crude for the rest of the year, it's not too healthy this year, but definitely going to see a resurgence in 21 or expected to uh, in terms of that poll. Excellent. Carry on the freight. What have we seen? Well, I'm going to talk mainly about the capes this week because I'm spotting an interesting juxtaposition here. <clears throat> no doubt that, uh, that everyone watching this market will be aware of, which is that the cape market's actually been drifting this week. Uh, the spot five TC average has fallen about a thousand bucks from this time last week. Um, uh, down to just over 18,000 now. Uh, while the front month on the paper has come off a bit more, uh, trading down from 22,875 last week to uh, 20,750 this morning. Now, it is worth noting, I think, that um, the premium on that front month paper has been shrinking. Um, you know, it has been trading consistently at about uh, $3,000 premium to the spot 5TC average for gosh, weeks now. Um, and uh, and for the first time, we're seeing that draw in uh, more like a $2,000 premium at the moment. Um, and I think that this comes against a backdrop of tonnage supply that in theory, as Tom was mentioning, should have been very tight in the East. Um, you know, everyone's talking about this 188 ship uh, uh, congestion list uh, of vessels waiting off China right now. I think it is worth noting that a number of those ships are waiting to discharge coal, not just iron ore. And indeed, some of that congestion is being caused by, I understand, uh, ports delaying discharge of coal uh, in an effort to try desperately to uh, to avoid going over their coking coal import quotas, their foreign coking coal import quotas. Um, and so that's part of the reason that congestion uh, is quite so high. But even with that, this should have led tonnage to be tight enough to keep rates very, very steady at the moment. Um, and yet, uh, we're not seeing those rates hold steady at all. We're seeing that uh, last week at this time, the C5, uh, that's the West Australia-China route on iron ore, was fixing at uh, around $8.40. 
Um, today it's sub eight dollars, uh, and so I think it's worth noting that um, that something is not completing this picture here. Uh, with that many ships tied up in congestion, and in addition, there's additional congestion uh, down in Australia. I should point out uh, due to their COVID restrictions, which means that every vessel has to have sailed at least 14 days from their previous port before they can actually berth. Do you think, Kerry, um, there's possibility, you know, when that, we saw that spike on Capes uh, about six weeks ago, was it? Maybe not quite that long yeah. ago. Um, a lot of people started positioning Panamax over to Brazil to sort of pick up that uptake at a, maybe a, a cheaper rate than, than fixing Capes to do it. And therefore, some of that congestion is actually built into the Panamax fleet rather than the Cape fleet. I mean, that's pure. That is true. That is true. Although we haven't really seen a corresponding jump in the Panamaxes who have also been dragged down this week. So, uh, and, uh, and while undoubtedly some of that slack will have been taken up by the Panamaxes, it's always harder in practice to split a Cape cargo um, than it looks on paper. Um, It's costlier and, and, and more of a pain to do it. So I think, what we're what we're seeing here is potentially a scenario where, despite all this optimism around Vale's undoubted increase in production, and as Tom's pointed out, they have increased very substantially, uh, shipping seven and a half million tons last week um, alone. Um, you know, the Cape tonnage supply is simply adequate to cover all this, even allowing for congestion. That's a possibility we do need to consider at this point. Um, uh, you know, which is. One of the reasons I think that premium on the front month paper to the index uh, is probably drawing in a little bit. Uh, and of course, we're seasonally backwarded quite heavily uh, moving into late Q4 and Q1, uh, which is true every year of the Cape. So, you know, I do think that it's, uh, it's a quandary here. Um, you have all of this optimism has really been what's kept the paper high for, for quite a number of weeks now about Valley increasing shipments. But those C3 rates have also fallen this week. You know, the index was only 18 spot 03 today, uh, or rather yesterday. And uh, I'm hearing that there may even be offers in the market at that level for September loading dates now. Um, so it's likely to drop again. Um, and so, you know, Vale, there's a number of possible explanations here. Vale was quietly able to take more tonnage than most people expected, uh, that the tonnage supply was never as tight as we expected. Um, or possibly that Vale is, is able to shift more of it to their Vale Max fleet. But uh, yeah, so apart from, yeah. <laughs> apart from what could be a very controversial US election, it sounds like everything else is just going to fall out the rest of this year and, uh, <laughs> with, with a whimper. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope not. But I think it's, it's something that's worth watching. Cool. Uh, Tom, any other points in terms of supply and demand that you should be highlighting? Uh, I think just some interesting points uh, on sort of some steel industry figures that we've received this week. So the Jan through July figures for the Chinese steel industry that have been released, uh, which is worth sort of taking note of. Um, So in terms of exports of steel, Jan through July, China exports declined 17.6% year on year. and imports rose 49%. So that that statistic there really highlights what's going on in the world in terms of where recoveries are being seen. Um, You know, massive decrease in China exports of steel, which would normally be going to Europe, uh, and huge increase in imports due to massive infrastructure bill from China. 
which is why that iron ore price that we've been confounded by all year has been so resolutely high. Um, that said, profit on domestic steel making enterprise, although it's improved uh, month on month, um, uh, came in at around $12.7 billion for the period, um, which is down 28% on the year. Um, but on revenues that increased, increased 3.3%, uh, but the rate of return on sales fell by 1.5%. So those negative rates that we've been starting to talk about, that we've been starting to see creep in in the last uh, four to six weeks uh, are being borne out in that year-to-date. Um, those year-to-date figures as well, obviously some of that reflected in the decline in input, uh, exports as well. Um, price of steel products overall have headed up, uh, an increase um, over the year as well. Um, so some interesting points uh, on the steel market there that I think reflect quite nicely what we've been talking about in terms of why the iron ore market is so tight why the iron ore price has been held up so strongly where you know, if you look at a macro perspective, you would expect it to be doing anything but. Um, but but some of that tightness being reflected in those steel figures there quite nicely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And some extra points in terms of the oil markets. Uh, US oil and gas exports um, expected to fall by 1 million barrels per day uh, as a result of the hurricane we were discussing. LNG exports are expected to be uh, the lowest in 18 months. Uh, to levels last seen in February 2019. Uh, and the, obviously the port of Houston is closed throughout this uh, this period and should be reopening on Thursday. Um, demand side, we, we talked previously about refiners. Some of them are increasing domestic production. Some are cutting uh, some products, especially the 0.5%, the very low sulfur fuel oil, uh, because just the margins aren't there and it's so oversupplied. And we've seen that in reflected in the price uh, and its movements. Japan's oil export... Uh, oil imports, uh, sorry, were up 23.2% year on year, uh, 7.5% month on month, yet you're seeing China imports drop. So we, we had previously driven by two months of record <clears throat> Chinese imports of crude, and now Japan's coming up. It, yeah. it does seem very uneven, and these different countries uh, and the, the, the time that they've come out, uh, the, the economic impact which the virus has had and the restrictions they put on, does mean that it does feel very disjointed in what countries are, are okay, what countries have you know popped up to record levels and then come back again because we don't need it anymore. Uh, in terms of China, it does seem that we could see import rates drop as much as 40% in the next couple of months because of that huge, uh, I guess, making up for lost time in the middle of the yeah. year that we saw after the initial Q1, which was just non-existent. Uh, so definitely something to, to watch in terms of overall demand you may have it around the same levels but it's different going to different places now and it's very very clear from the, the disjointed nature and a lot of the the refiners doing their best to try to balance this collapse in in demand but with such a, a wash of, of crude in terms of the supply side um and, and the difficulties of balancing that it is reflected that they're actually doing fairly well if you look at crack markets which have if you look at the high sulfur and the sing sing point five for example they've been very flat yeah so in terms of the margins they're doing a decent job as it is but uh whether that continues and we have got loads of issues which we brought up one the u.s election which could throw in a whole huge raft of changes coming into q4 which could make things interesting um but in terms of uh, another market which has not been doing very well uh in terms of the tankers the vl market VLCC, which spot has slipped below world scale 30 
which is the first time it's done that in five years. Uh, as a close yesterday, we were sitting at 27.75. And a lot of this has been driven with uh, lengthening lists combined with no real cargo in interest, no real inquiry for it and demand, which is just simply not mm -hmm. there uh, for it. There's an uh, estimated 29% oversupply of vessels arriving into the Middle East Gulf. Uh, so uh, a figure which has been uh, noted by trade winds uh, and uh, just a whole raft of things which are just not looking great. Uh, and that's still with about half the fleet sat as floating storage, right? Exactly. Around about 80 VLCCs are still currently being used for that floating storage. You know, wow. you're throwing that into the mix and it, you know, you could, it's re definitely reflect in terms of the Q4 versus the Cal 21 uh, values in the paper where, you know, definitely hoping to, to pick up in the Cal 21. But as of the rest of this year, it does look fairly dire in terms of the, the tanker market. Any other points, Kerry, in terms of the freight supply and demand side? Um, I think just for a quick look at the Panamaxes, uh, particularly, as I mentioned last week, the fact that the U.S. Gulf, um, save for weather disruptions, obviously, um, has been <clears throat> has been picking up. Excuse me. Uh, we understand that uh, around 1.1 million tons of U.S. corn was sold to China this week for export in the remainder of the year. So that momentum looks set to continue out of the NOPAC and the U.S. Gulf, I should expect which may help to keep the Panamaxes a little bit steadier. They've been drifting this week as well, but uh, but again, something to watch on the positive side for the Panamaxes. Cool. Any final points before we finish for this week? Tom? Uh, nothing from me, Chris. Nope. Nothing from, from my side. Nothing from me. So to uh, all our listeners, thank you very much for joining us this week on uh, Wednesday the 2nd of September. Please do join us again next week for our market updates and our news overview. 